Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. My guest today, David Kay, is the author of the UN's first ever report on the regulation of user-generated online content. That is, how governments and companies like Facebook and Twitter police their users. David Kay is the UN Special Rapporteur for the Freedom of Expression and a law professor at UC Irvine. And in our conversation, he explains how human rights principles can inform debates about how to approach fake news, disinformation, and online extremism, all while maintaining a fidelity to the ideals of free speech. I'll post a link to the report on globaldispatchespodcast.com, and I really recommend people take a look at it because it's such a unique report. It examines policies in both more authoritarian countries and more liberal countries, as well as the disparate policies of social media platforms themselves, and is really the first global examination of this issue. I personally found this conversation helpful and clarifying and and still leaves a lot to, to chew on, so I think you will enjoy my conversation with David Kay. As always, if you have uh, suggestions of people you want me to interview or topics you want me to cover, please do let me know. Uh, You can always reach me using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Oh, and a big thank you to everyone who's becoming a premium subscriber to the podcast. Um, And and there are a number of new premium subscribers out there. So big thank you to, to those of you who have signed up in, in recent weeks. And just as a reminder, uh, the premium subscription to the podcast uh, unlocks some bonus episodes that's for premium subscribers only and also entitles you to a complimentary subscription of my daily news clips service called Don's Digest. This is a, a daily roundup that I and a partner put together of the most important, most relevant global humanitarian news of the day. And it arrives in your inbox early in the morning. And you can get that when you become a premium subscriber. All right. Now here is my conversation with UN special rapporteur, David Kay. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health. Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So, you know, this is uh, a topic that, I mean, more or less, we've been dancing around for for several years. So in my work, you know, basically, the Human Rights Council asked me to evaluate issues of freedom of expression around the world. And historically, that's focused on issues of protection of journalists, protection of individuals who are part of vulnerable communities. Um, Over the last several years, it's also involved a heavy dose of, uh, you know, 
sort of responding to cases in which people have been, um, you know, essentially criminalized for the work that they do online, for their statements online, for their likes online, and so forth. So for the last several years, we've really been paying attention to, to the online space. We did a couple of reports over the last few years, one dealing with encryption and anonymity, and you know how how digital security is important to freedom of expression, and then we've moved to to really spending time looking at the private sector and its you know overwhelming role in shaping freedom of expression online. And so, last year I did a report on infrastructure, basically digital access and internet shutdowns and things like that, and how those, particularly as um, you know, pressed by governments, is undermining freedom of expression for billions of people. And we decided that for this one, we really needed to focus on the role of social media, search, um, and others, and how they're shaping basically the public space and how governments are responding to it. So how do you go about putting a report like this together? I mean, you call up government, say, hey, I'm from the UN. I want to talk to you about your social media content regulations. Yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of that. So what we do is um, typically, although not all the time, but typically we'll start by uh, basically posting an announcement on the UN page uh, in which we say, um, you know, this is the topic of the next report and we issue a call for submissions. We also do a note verbal to governments. Basically, you know, we send all governments through their delegations in Geneva a message saying this is what we'll be doing, and we'd we'd love to learn from you um, any laws that you have, any policies that you have that implicate this area. And so we kind of start from there, where we get information from governments, we get a lot of information from civil society, and um, and we also do consultations um, around the world. And for this one, we consulted uh, in person with people in um, in Geneva. In um, in Bangkok, online we did uh, we did a we did consultations with people from the Middle East, from Africa, from um, from South America and Latin America. So you know we try to gather as much information as we can so that we can talk about you know the lived experience of people online and and also get a sense from governments as to how they see these issues. So you cast a pretty wide net, and I take it you also engage directly with uh, the tech giants in Silicon Valley, the Facebooks, the Twitters, every uh, and and their counterparts around the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, right. So so there's there was the kind of the usual um, uh, targets for us in terms of civil society and um, and governments, and those you know those are critical. But this was a to- a space where. You know, we couldn't really do this report if we didn't hear from the companies themselves. So we reached out to to actually all the companies, the major companies in the U.S., in Russia, in China, um, in Japan and Korea, and um, and we set up meetings in Silicon Valley. So we met with people at Facebook, Google, Reddit, Twitter, GitHub, Yahoo, Oath, um, Microsoft. Wikimedia. We met with a lot of people, um, really at the senior levels of people working on content policy, and um, and we also, you know, we reached out to others. Uh, we didn't hear back from Russian or Chinese companies. We've we've had some conversations with people at Line, 
uh, in Tokyo. And I think that what's that? that is, we'll, that, is that a Japanese? They, they um, tend to be more of a messaging service oh, okay, than okay. anything else, um, but they're very, very big in Asia. Hmm. Um, and you know, over time, we'll try to reach out to others. But but we had really good meetings with with all of the companies as we were preparing this report. So so what did you find? Um, what yeah. were what's your 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 big takeaway from kind of your global overview of online user generated content regulation? Yeah. So I mean, I. I, I in the report, I separated it out into two different areas. So one is our findings about states, and then two is our findings about companies. And you know, on on states, it's pretty clear that we could divide that up even into two different sections, right? On the one hand, you've got authoritarian governments that are involved in you know deeply repressing online speech. I want to put those to the side because. Those those kinds of actors are are very clearly interfering with freedom of expression, and they're doing so in ways that are clear under human rights law. Which you know, like what? For, my, give an example of of just yeah. like a clear violator of human rights law, free speech um, norms. Yeah, I mean, very very straightforward one would be the example of Ahmed Mansour, who is an activist in the United Arab Emirates, who has been basically prosecuted and sentenced to a pretty lengthy prison term, I, I forget what it is exactly, um, for his activity on Facebook and, uh, and Twitter. And the same is true for Bahrain. They've uh, sentenced um, you know, a, a range of people, number of people, simply for you know, their likes and their activity on on social media. And, and I mean, that and, what about yeah. like so a case like Egypt, for example? So so I saw the other day that Egypt is considering or may have actually passed a new law that um, seeks to um, put any account that has more than five thousand followers uh, under the jurisdiction of some like media oversight company. So all of a sudden, if you have more than five thousand followers, you're considered like a media, presumably, so you can be more easily shut down. Yeah. It, that's really concerning to us. And we communicate with governments about those kinds of, of restrictions. I mean, I would put Egypt into the same category as the UAE and Bahrain and others um, across the Arab world, uh, um, across the Middle East, really, who are um, criminalizing online speech. And, and you know, what, what Egypt has done is basically taken, you know, the legitimate concept of cybersecurity law and transformed it into a way to punish activism and peaceful protest and criticism of the government. So, you know, they've long had laws against the dissemination of false information, you know, fake news laws, basically, mm -hmm. the precursor of what we've seen talked about today. And, um, and they've used that really heavily in the last several years since, you know, the ascension of Sisi as the leader of the country. And, um, you know, that's it's deeply problematic, but it's also like those kinds of instances are very clearly violations of human rights obligations, which, you know, for me is Article 19 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights or the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, which, you know, gives everybody the right to seek, receive and impart information and ideas of all kinds. And it imposes really limited opportunities for states to restrict that. And it's just clear in the authoritarian context, um, and and there's a wave of this really like, of authoritarians. And, and, yeah. and I mean, I know another example that's been um, 
popping up recently is is Uganda, which um, for a time sought to impose some tariffs and taxes on the use of social media, presumably in, in order to deter it, like, you know, treating it like a, a vice. No, exactly. I mean, we, we see this around the world. We see, you know, you know, kind of different levels of creativity around um, restricting free speech online. And what's the um, most the, deviously creative example that you've seen? That's a really good question. I mean, most of the time, I have to have to say that um, the authoritarians are not that, you know, it's not that they're that clever or devious. They're, they're pretty straightforward restrictions on speech. I mean, one, I think that that people have been looking at for a long time is requirements for data localization. Right? So this is a little bit different than the direct content regulation. But, um, you know, many states, um, Russia has has a law, for example, that says that if you are a, a social media company and you're operating in our market, you know, you have users in our territory, their data, their personal data should be kept on servers in our territory. Now, you know, that in some places that might be privacy protective, right? If you're in a GDPR uh, uh, country in the European Union, that actually might enhance the privacy and security of, uh, of an individual user of Facebook, let's say. But you know, if you're in Russia, that basically is saying Russia will get access to your data. And that has a very significant chilling effect on the kind of speech that, uh, that you'll engage in. I, I would say, though, that, you know, because the authoritarian examples are fairly straightforward, you know, the, the harder ones and the ones that we should be paying attention to, particularly in the West, are the ones coming out of the European Union, right? So if you look at the European Commission's various activities around what they refer to as illegal hate speech, um, the creation of internet referral units in which basically different either national or EU-level um, policing outfits will refer um, troubling content to, to the companies to have it taken down. Um, if you look at Germany's NetzDG law, which um, imposes very significant fines on companies that don't kind of in a, on a systematic level, um, you know, um, impose restrictions so that um, so that hate speech and other illegal content cannot be shared. These, I mean, to my mind, are the are the places that we should be really focusing on and and be concerned about. I mean, we should obviously be most concerned about the authoritarian threats. But I think that, you know, the future of of uh, discourse of freedom of expression in democratic space really requires public accountability, transparency, and other measures, and not, you know, basically governments forcing the companies to do things that they themselves can't do under human rights law. Well, well, let, let's let's sort of examine that that German exa example a bit because I, I think it's mm -hmm. it's really interesting and it sort of I think. Um, distills, I think, probably some of the the big sort of political and legal and ethical challenges you're, you're facing. I mean, you know, Germany, like many countries in Europe, unlike the United States, does have restrictions on on hate speech. Um, yeah. You know, born from their own historic experiences. Um, so why should they not be able to impose those restrictions on online platforms? And and I should say, just as as an aside. Um, 
you know, I haven't done this, but I know that like a number of, of journalists for a while after the uh, the the net D, uh, the the German law was passed, a number of mm-hmm. journalists on Twitter would figure out a way to like get their, uh, particularly ju- uh, journalists with Jewish last names, um, would would figure out how to get their um, you know, Germany to be their their location, so that they would like get a lot fewer Nazis pop up in their in their feed and like hurl yeah. anti-Semitic tweets at them because like Twitter would be more judicious in taking those accounts down. Um, right. So, so I, I mean, that was just <laughs> like a way to make their online experience more pleasant to get rid yeah. of the, the Nazis in their feed. Um, so, 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 yeah. so, so why, why not let, let Germany do that? Like, why is that chilling? No, I mean, so the, the first, the first point is yes, every government has the right to enforce its own laws in its territory. I mean, I think if we went through um, a list of the German laws that are specifically at issue in NetsDG, we'd um, we'd have some concerns about their compatibility with free speech law. Um, not all of it, um, and and I think of course you need to recognize that Germany has some um, kind of specific, let's say, historical reasons for restricting certain kinds of speech. But they also re- restrict speech, for example, related to insult, right? And what what Germany is actually actually asking the companies to do is to adjudicate pretty difficult questions of law, like putting aside issues of, you know, incitement to violence or neo-Nazi content or, you know, things that are very obviously inconsistent with with German law, asking the companies to, to basically be an adjudicator for some very difficult issues of speech law, I think you know, it it detracts from the notion of public accountability for um, for for you know for legal rules. They're essentially outsourcing to the companies quite a bit of the regulation of their public space. If NetsDG were instead basically to say, "We've got this law, and we're going to enforce it, and we're essentially going to work with the companies to create something like," now I'm just spitballing this, something like an internet court in which you have specialists who on a pretty quick turnaround basis can evaluate these kinds of issues, but can do so under terms of public accountability, I think we'd be in a different environment. But what NetsDG says is, this is up to the companies to do. And I think that's that's just problematic, basically. I mean, I should say though, and this might be a decent segue into the company's responsibilities, one thing that NetsDG does, which I think is worth applauding is that it um, it imposes transparency and disclosure requirements on the companies themselves. Because one of the things that we saw through our research over the last year and a half, two years, and I think that most people kind of intuitively understand, is that the companies are really opaque. They're opaque about how they adopt laws. I mean, laws, they're opaque about how they adopt their, their community guidelines, their standards, their rules. They're opaque about how they enforce those rules. Most people don't really have a a good understanding of of how that works, whether it's possible to appeal when your content is taken down. Yeah, I was was going to say, that's actually like like a a, a pretty consistent problem where you have people like wrongfully accused of... Exactly. And and their their account suspended for a while. And that, you know, that's an abrogation of their right to free speech. Yeah, well, so... 
so I think that Germany is doing the right thing on the transparency side, but no, not so much on the public accountability side. When it comes to what the companies are doing, you know, I think there's a first question that that I that I think we can sort of talk about a little bit, which is, um, although it gets a little bit uh, um, you know theoretical, is you know to what extent are these companies essentially serving as um, custodians of public space, right? If if they're and and I think they clearly have a major influence on public discussion, public debate. They are a public forum that's privately owned, and they you know they just more or less in most parts of the world lack real competition. It's true that in the United States, you know if you leave Facebook, you can go to Twitter, or if you leave Twitter and Facebook, you could use Instagram owned by Facebook, or you could use any number, you could be active on Reddit. You have choices in which you can decide where you can be active. That's not really true in many parts of the world. And so I think in that kind of situation, these companies really need to be thinking first about, you know, to what extent their rules should be consistent with public norms, which I think of as basically human rights norms that can be globally consistent. And then secondly, to what extent should they be opening themselves up to a kind of form of, of public accountability that doesn't exist right now? So how do you thread the needle on something like Facebook regulating a site like InfoWars, right? Which is this mm -hmm. kind of conspiracy theory minded site, one that, uh, you know, spread, you know, truther, Sandy Hook truther, you know, conspiracies, but also is one that, you know, has, you know, had the president of the United States on to, to interview. Um, so yeah. what, so, so how do you like, uh, how does a company like Facebook thread that needle, whether or not they de-emphasize or, or, or boot content like that from their platform? Yeah. So and what does I mean, like saw... human rights law say about that and, and human rights norms globally say about mm -hmm. a question like that? Yeah. So, I mean, think about it first. Imagine if Facebook were state owned. I mean, that might be one way to get into the human rights law kind of, kind of issue. And if, if you think of it that way, you think, okay, well, the human rights norms are, there's two sets of norms, right? In, in, a, in effect, one, individuals have the right to share any information, information of all kinds. It doesn't say, you know, you can't, or human rights law doesn't say you can't share false information. It, you can share information and ideas of all kinds. States can restrict that freedom as long as it is provided by law which means it's got to be basically clear and adopted by normal procedure. And it's got to be necessary and proportionate in order to protect a specific interest. And those interests include the rights or reputations of others, um, national security and public order and public health and public morals. So if you think of it using those terms, the question of you know, Facebook, if it were state-owned, <laughs> right, regulating Infowars would be a little bit I think it would be a little bit clearer. And I think to my mind, it would lead us, and I think this is a very hard question, but um, for specific kinds of, uh, of posts and specific kinds of content, particularly the content around Sandy Hook, I think you could make a case that, um, that that content 
is interfering with the rights of others, the private rights of others, the reputations of others. That is the parents of of those, you know, the poor kids killed at, at Sandy Hook, right? And and in that case, you then ask, well, is it necessary to take down that content? Are there other tools that individuals can use in order to deal with that kind of um, that kind of threat to their to their private rights, their individual rights. And I think there, there may be other ways other than Facebook taking that down um, to, to deal with that kind of threat. I, I see this really from the perspective of how difficult it is for Facebook or for a public authority to draw the line at what's truthful and what's not. What, how it can be the arbiter of truth and falsehood. And, you know, I think that InfoWars is on, you know, the far edge in many respects, because so much of what it publishes is, is false. And, you know, just so much more than misleading, it's intentionally designed to, um, to incite a kind of hostility toward public figures and to private figures. You know, if that's a systematic issue, I think, Facebook needs to think about whether that that's something that belongs on its platform, just as a public authority would have to think, is that something that it could censor? I think it would be very difficult, if not impossible, for a state to um, to take down Infowars. Um, but um, but I you know I get that this is a really tough call for for companies to make. So, like any good UN report, yours uh, includes recommendations. Uh, what do you recommend what what should both companies and governments around the world do to you know more adequately address some of the competing concerns that 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 you identify in the report? Yeah, so I mean, um, I'll focus on on the companies because we've talked less about that, um, but it, but it's also about maybe how the how government regulation can can push this a little bit forward. I, I think the companies need to do two or three things. Um, the first, I think that they should basically look at their um, their content standards. So for Facebook, it's community standards for YouTube, community guidelines for Twitter, it's Twitter rules, and then everybody's got, all of the platforms have, the, have similar kinds of rules that we might think of as platform law. Because they're global, and because they are dealing with communities around the world, I think they should adopt a common standard that's rooted in human rights law. I think that's consistent with their obligations under the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. And I think it would be actually a way for the companies to um, to justify different decisions that they might take around the world and to make those decisions in a consistent way. So that's one thing. So, so, can, can I just, so, yeah. so could you foresee like uh, a, a meeting of, of executives from Facebook and, and Twitter and, and the competing platforms all kind of coming together almost in like a, a, a UN-ish way and, and kind of create like a new sort of informal or formal treaty amongst themselves that is their kind of like a common user guidelines? Well, that would be great. I don't think I don't see that happening, um, but I think that would be great. I think, but I think that each one on their own should adopt rules that are consistent with human rights law. I mean, basically integrating human rights law into their rules. But I think what you're describing 
is actually something that could be really valuable on the side of disclosure and transparency and and appeal. So as I was suggesting before, it's very hard, if not impossible, for individuals to appeal content takedowns or if they report um, content that they think is, say, inciting violence and it doesn't get taken down to appeal that. I think that if the companies got together and essentially created something like a social media council, it's a term that, that was developed by the organization Article 19, but a kind of um, public council that would evaluate um, these kinds of issues, that would evaluate appeals, that would kind of be like a an internet court, but would be driven by many stakeholders uh, and and basically would would drive a greater degree of transparency into their operations. I think that we'd be in a better place in terms of having debates over what the companies are taking down, what they're leaving up, how hard it is. You know, many people say um, content moderation is hard. Well, if it's so hard, open it up to public public scrutiny so that we can have debates about exactly how hard it is. So I think your idea of getting the companies together is actually a smart one, um, and it's a smart one for the purposes of thinking about transparency, perhaps more so than thinking about the, the content of the rules themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, any, any sort of final thoughts, anything you think uh, you emphasize in your report, but we didn't emphasize enough in this conversation? Yeah, I guess the one thing I'd, I would close with is the, um, you know, one of the big stories of the past year has been Facebook's failures in Myanmar. Right? There's been a lot of reporting on this. Mm-hmm. And I think... And did I you, think just, to, are, just to explain, Myanmar, yeah. the, 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 the failure you're referring to is that Facebook was used as a platform to stir up hate speech and direct violence against Rohingya minority which resulted right. in, in you know, uh, things that might have led up to the genocide, if nothing else, is mass displacement and, and ethnic cleansing. But Facebook was a tool of incitement. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so was radio. So were other broadcast networks. So was print. But, um, but Facebook dominates the media in Myanmar. And, um, and I think if you look back to last summer and you look at how Facebook addressed it and the tools that it had in order to evaluate Burmese language content and, um, and also to evaluate how Rohingya Muslims were communicating with one another. I think they had very little insight into what was happening at the local level. And I think this is a long-term problem for the companies, not just for Facebook. And that is, you know, how do they involve local actors in the governance of their platforms? And how do they involve local actors in such a way so they're not just kind of parachuting in and getting, you know, a dozen language specialists to advise them on what's appropriate and what's not for that particular market. But how can it be really owned locally? You know, I use this example of, you know, imagine if, um, you know, the New York Times were the only publication in the United States, you know, you'd, you'd be... To a certain extent, you take, okay, no problem. It's a great publication. Um, on the other hand, they'd be terrible at covering local, inf- local news. They wouldn't really have a good sense of what's happening at the local level. And I think social media and search is really in that position right now. And I think we all need to be thinking carefully about 
how you know local ownership, local stakeholders can be involved in basically governing the platforms, but governing in such a way that doesn't lead to you know state interference. It's it's a very complicated area, but I think it's one that that the companies and users and activists really need to be thinking through carefully as a matter of urgency over the over the coming months and years. Uh, well, David, thank you so much for your time and, and for this report. And uh, I look forward to, to reading more uh, on this issue from you. Mark, thanks so much. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to special rapporteur David Kay. I always appreciate reading his reports and, and chatting with him. And I suspect that we'll meet sometime in, in the near future. Our, our paths will certainly cross. They have not yet. I've not met him in person, though. I aspire to one day. David, if you're listening, we'll, we'll meet. Uh, all right. We'll see you again soon. Thanks. Bye.